An M and M case in which nothing was done wrong. A sort of interesting case. So I'll ask some questions of the residents. I don't want other people answering what they know answers to. Right? So this is the uh, the case of the uh, baffling the case, baffling case of the house cat bike. <laughs> so uh, here we go. So. Uh, here we have a woman who walks into triage with her husband, and she's, uh, she's complaining of having fevers to 104 just for a few hours with a, a sudden onset of this red, tender, swollen upper right arm. Okay, so she's walked back to the bed, she walks in, but they get her, so you see the vital signs of triage, that we've done at triage, there they are. What do you think, is she potentially sick or not? Who's discussing this? Oh, okay. So she's now uh, lying in the bed, and you, you watch her walk in. There's your vitals. What do you want to do? Um, okay. Uh, so, uh, do you want to? Um, what do you want to ask her? <coughs> About three hours. How did it start? It started with shaking chills and fever, and she noticed at the same time she had this red swollen spot on her right upper arm, just above the anterior fossa. Okay. It sounds like there's some kind of a bite. Yeah, you might ask her that. <laughs> How about a little past history, though? She has an invasive ductal carcinoma of the right breast. Lumpect treated with lumpectomy with no positive note, so she doesn't have any evidence of metastasis. But she's uh, on her uh, fourth cycle of adjuvant chemotherapy, which she had for uh, two weeks earlier. So what do you think now? So um, you might question whether she could be neutrophilic or it would be immunosuppressed, but she doesn't have metastatic disease. She has no other uh, diseases uh, like diabetes, kidney failure, anything like that. Or or she's on steroids. Yes. So when somebody comes in with chemo, can you, by definition, just say they're immunosuppressed? They don't have to be neutrophilic, but they're immunosuppressed. So the neutrophils they might have, the white cells they do have, may not be working. Yeah, it's possible there's a functional defect if they're not neutrophilic. So if somebody comes in on chemo, so I just got chemo yesterday and chemo today, do you just say, okay, antibiotics, books, there's the uh, if they don't have neutropenia and they look well, uh, some authorities withhold antibiotics. I might go, I'm going to go into that later. later. So, I don't have much more history. It essentially was unremarkable. So, you get this history, you get this history, and now you're going to examine her. And there's her arm. This is the right upper arm. So, this is the anencubital fossa right here. There's the shoulders there. So, it's uh, on the upper arm. There's a stem of it, you see the stem where they've drawn the uh, lines of cellulitis. So she has full range of motion of this, she can do this. There's swollen there, there's no lymphadenitis um, present, or no pain under the armpit. And you squeeze it, you can't, uh, it doesn't feel, it sort of feels hard in the middle and sort of soft on the sides here. You can't really squeeze it and pus on anything like that. And she said this came on pretty sudden, at the same time as the thing, uh, just a few hours. Skin, there's no other lesions present. Okay. I can't hear you. Okay. 
she states that 14 hours prior to arrival, 14 hours, she'd been scratched and nipped uh, playfully by her own cat at the same site. So she got sick pretty fast after this cat scratched and nipped her. Right? It was her own cat that was stayed in the house all the time. Yeah, the cat's been vaccinated against feline leukemia. <laughs> That's what they usually get back in the Cats against rabies, right? The cat's fully immunized against the process and everything, right? So, uh, now, so she got sick pretty fast. She's like, you know, suppressed and interconnect, so you're worried about her. So you want to do some, want to do some orders? Yeah. <coughs> There's nothing else on the exam or the history that's used for right now. maybe a little saline bubbles old. She's probably not dehydrated. Uh, lab tests like CBC, you might want to check your liver's function for diabetes and things like that, because it might make her more and less depressed. And you might give her toxic blood, so you might want to check that, like the CMP or the CBC. Probably you get blood cultures, might use a cancer patient. Might get a urinalysis, but I'm not sure that's essential. You could consider an x-ray of the arm, but I don't think they do it in this case. Looking for like a foreign body or hair and tissues. But they didn't, I don't think they did this. Did they still think osteo? Are you using a lot of What? Like osteo? <coughs> I was allowed out in the next few minutes with the test. No, I mean, if you get an x-ray or you send DSR. So, uh, you probably, she probably wouldn't have that if it's just happened. Unless it's coming out of the bone going to the skin. That's a possibility. So, I would say uh, you should fall on the side of getting an x-ray, but I don't think they did one now. So this looks sort of well, except for the fever and the skin region. So uh, here you get some lab tests back. And uh, the only thing abnormal was really on the CDC. The, the CMP and the UA were normal. So here we have, what do we think about this uh, CBC? Neutrophils are 100. So she's neutrophilic. She's anemic, and you look at her records and that's stable for her. Playlists are a little lower than usual, but not too bad, right? So then you order two sets of blood cultures. And she has no intravenous catheters to culture from the reporter cast or anything like that. Okay. So and now she did you do a third blood culture from something well alive. No, you you do the, you do two blood cultures total, one from an indwelling from one port of indwelling line and one peripheral. Uh, it's been shown you don't need really three. Unless you're looking for bacteria and ocarditis, you might need three, but you have to space them apart by hours. So you really would consider that. Just two. So we got the blood cultures. And now uh, let's go through what that's why don't you call on on R2 for what's the differential diagnosis? Uh, what kind of you assume this is an infection, I suppose, but what kind of infection might cause this? It might have been from the cat bite, it could be incidental. If the cat was just playing with her and she has something from her own skin, she could have got something from somewhere else. Uh, you wonder whether this uh, site 
where she got infected is right above where she had an IV infusion of her chemotherapy. Maybe it's related to a triple A onset. And two weeks after chemo, you get an infection at the site of the vein. That's a possibility, but it's sort of late, right? So what kind of organisms might you consider? Bartonella. what? Which species? Pencilli. So that causes cat scratch fever. Okay. Tell me, uh, let's, this is a very difficult case that it's cat scratch fever. Uh, we need an R3 to help out on this thing. What are the manifestations of cat scratch disease? Cat scratch fever, which is a bacteria Bartonella pencilli. Is it anything like this presentation? I can't hear what it is on, but lymph nodes. Right. So at the at the site of the scratch or bite, which is a flea, it's a cat flea is biting you. It's really not the scratch so much. Uh, you get almost nothing there, or a tiny papule with no symptoms of fever. And then it's only a few uh, weeks later you present with possibly with fever, possibly not, but a lot of subacute swelling of a regional lymph node. So this is not the presentation of cat scratch. So uh, let's go to the cat scratch disease. Then. That's either Bartonella hensel. Any kind of scratch, or just because of fleas all color with bitter right there? Yeah, it used to be thought it was just from the, they have the Bartonella in their claws. They probably they might too, but it may be from the cat fleas biting too. But so this it doesn't have any, anything to do with cat scratch disease. It's a completely different presentation. As that has a lot of incubation. So uh, unless you got it from a, from a flea bite or a cat scratch from two weeks earlier. But the thing is, you don't get any lesions like that. You get a tiny papule, and then later, a few weeks later, you come in with a lot of lymph adenopathy on your side. So Michael's right. This isn't a very good presentation for cat scratch. So you think of like bad bacteria, right? So rapid onset of infection, fever right away. What kind of bacteria are you considering? What? Yes, that kind of rapid onset of infection. Anything else? Probably not her case. Because she hasn't been doing much. Diving or possibly any water restricted exercise, right? Or fingerhead and the fish tank. Yeah, we saw water fish tank. Yeah, so that could cause a rapid onset of infection, often necrotizing. Uh, that's probably not likely here. I don't even have that on my list of different uh, so Anything else? So you got group A strep, pastoral metastasia. A group. Uh, anything else? Staph aureus, possibly the MRSA. Uh, anything else? What if there was no cats involved, no bites or scratches? But you have skin lesion with thyroid pain. That's some, something else you could get. Uh, Clostridium, uh, Clostridium species can get to the skin from the from the blood. Bacteria uh, from the GI tract and there's something there, and it's often not Clostridium perfringens like we do. It's other species. That's a good thought because that causes a rapid onset of infection. It can lead to gas pneumonia later. Okay, and anything else? Pseudomonas aeruginosa. That's the other one. All the grand negative box. And that would often get to the skin from the blood and cause a rapid onset of infection. And it would, but that wouldn't occur in other people that are neutropenic. That's one of the things you see in neutropenic people. So um, here's some differential I put together here. Group A strep, Staph aureus, Castorola metastata. 
Now, what about this one? You didn't mention that. That comes from dogs, usually, sometimes cats, usually dog bites. Uh, and it mainly causes a septic picture with sort of limits fulminant angiocoxemia in patients who are immunosuppressed. They could be on chemo, but it's more likely in splenic dysfunction or a hybrid steroids. So it's possible uh, that we want to, we probably want to cover for this because it could be highly stable. It's fairly easy to treat because it senses almost most antibiotics. So most, if we're treating for other things, we'll probably cover this. What's unusual about this is when you have an infection with this, we present with fulminant meningococcemia type picture with purpura and shock, or maybe a little earlier if you haven't been shocked yet. But essentially, there's no good sign of infection at the side of the bite. It's like nothing, like a little puncture wound. So this is unusual to have a, a bite site. So, but I don't wouldn't remember that too much because if you treat for, with a lot of antibiotics with broad spectrum, you're going to cover that over here. So here's another one: Clostridium perfringens, or that's or some other species. Another anaerobe, Pseudomonas, in neutropenic people, people causes a lesion called ectomegalovirus. I'm going to show you a picture of that later, example. And that gets to the skin from the blood. Back, primary back brain, the main from the GI tract without a disease there, and it causes a necrotic area. This tends to be not too painful because uh, the bacteria invade the venial walls and the nerve get down. So it's like this painless necrotic area with a big vesicle or something like that. I'll show you a picture later. And then fungal, neutropenic uh, people are, are predisposed to fungal infections, but only a few kinds, uh, mainly candida and aspergillosis and a few others, but they're not prone to get uh, recurrence of uh, coccidiomycosis or histoplasmosis or anything like that. It's mainly the fungus that are called the pyogenic fungi. It's sort of like the bacteria that are pyogenic. And um, what about viruses? Uh, are there any viral infections that neutropenia predisposes to? They see they close the circle neutropenia viruses. No. Turns out the viruses are all protected for by cell mediated immunity. And so that uh, without a cell mediated immune defect, you don't get any increased frequency of viral infections, like aerosol exhaust or like chicken pox or diapertes. That's cell-mediated immune deficiency. Now, if you that's AIDS, then. AIDS is a cell-mediated immune deficiency. Now, if you've been on multiple courses of chemo, including steroids with it, that can cause cell-mediated immune deficiency. But she probably doesn't have that. So uh, you really are considering mainly bacteria and rare fungi. Okay. So let's decide this now. What uh, what do you want to do for empiric treatment? You've got your blood cultures, urine culture if you want. You've got an x-ray that doesn't show you so soft tissue infection. Uh, you probably want to get her some antibiotics. It might cover things related from the cat and from her own skin. And then you got to think of the trouble in leukemia, which you get something that needs like a few months. So uh, this changes your approach a little bit. And that what, you, what, what would you do if she just had febrile leukemia and looked well with no lesions or focus of infection? So you get, like a febrile neutropenia patient comes in but without a history of having an illusion like that, you probably do like a chest x-ray or analysis. And then if there's nothing that's found, and you say you don't have a source, like no abdominal pain, no source is found, then what do you do for that? The cephal is boring like Kepler, right? Kepler? Are you good? No? Yeah. Okay, what do you think? For a cephal? Febrile cephal, right. That would be uh, at UCI. 
that would be what we'd use. Does ECI have an official approved uh, clinical guideline or algorithm for fed treatment? Yes. yes. No. <laughs> and the reason they don't was the one we sort of developed was draft by the ID people and the pharmacists. And then we presented it, they presented it to the oncologists. And neither of none of them could agree among themselves. It was like halfway, so it was canceled. There is no plan to develop one unless the chief of oncology decided to do it, but he couldn't decide either. So as far as we know, there's we just look in a book or something, or we can ask what what they usually do is what's in the guidelines for other organizations. But UCI has no official protocol for federal media. What? That would be a good choice. Zosin uh, alone probably would be good, right? Cefepine or Zosin. So here's some uh, possibilities. Uh, oh, cat scratches these. Here's some possibilities. So I put these up here. Which would you might choose for uh, this infection? We've got Cefepine and Zosin would be good choices. Both of those are excellent coverage from Pasteurella. That's awesome for both of those as well as that covers all the anaerobes, which are probably not likely, but possible. Cefepine actually covers from most anaerobes that aren't from the gastrointestinal tract anyway. And uh, cefepine, in terms of covering pastoral and metasida, though, every kind of cephalosporin other than the first generation covers pastoral really well, as well as the capnocytopica. So you probably wouldn't give cefazolin alone unless you're combining it with a bunch of other drugs. You probably need that. What about covering uh, staph aureus? Cefepime and Zosin are really good for M methicillin sensitive. Uh, she might have MS, MRSA. It's not likely, but uh, you probably look at her previous cultures and find she doesn't have any colonization. So uh, you could make a case you might want to add that I think left off vancomycin on the bridge. You could give vancomycin with, with one of the other drugs. So that would be acceptable. I forgot to list vancomycin. Uh, another acceptable one might be Neurocanum and Imipanum. Uh, especially it covers anaerobes, it covers all the pseudomonas well like that. It covers more resistant gram-negative rods that are resistant to some of these other ones. So, uh, but you probably consider you could give those, one of those alone, like Cryptazo, Cefepime, or Neurocanum and Imipanum alone. They cover most, most everything except the MRSA, which you could add vancomycin to. So that's good. What about some of these? What if she had penicillin allergy? Let's say uh, one year ago she had anaphylaxis to cefotaxime and ampicillin or so at the same time. So you might want to avoid the beta-lactams. And then you're stuck. Well, there's a lot of drugs to treat pastorella with. Every quinolone is reactive against it. This is doxycycline and bactrim. Uh, some of these others aren't too good. Clindamycin doesn't cover pastorella. It covers most staff. So, this is something you might want to ask an ID fellow or an expert or something. So let's say you started her on Piptazo. So she and the oncology fellow who you called recommended that the inpatient team give her granulocyte column stimulant fact to make the white cells go up. It doesn't work right away. It's fairly expensive. It does work on making the white cells go up and it can lower the uh, time that you're sick, but it actually doesn't change your mortality rate if you have cancer or trouble It's very expensive, so some people would argue against it, saying it doesn't change the outcome, it just makes you get better faster. So I suppose it's good if you get out of the hospital faster. So she got that. Uh, so what happened is she got admitted, and actually over the next 48 hours, uh, 
Actually, she started to feel better after the next day, but her arm got worse. Her arm got worse, but again, she had full range of motion, she could move around okay, but it looked worse and got a stab over it. So one more thing you could have done, actually initially as part of the diagnosis that I would do, but most people probably wouldn't, is you could actually do a little aspirin Because in the middle of it, it looked like there was a little eschar there, so I would recommend you could, could take a little needle or a scalpel and sort of thin it with alcohol, scrape it a little bit, squeeze it, and then take a culturette and get something off the surface, a little tissue juice, and that might grow an organism. We might see a gram stain showing the staph aureus, so you might make sure you cover well for that. You might have injected the aspirate back. Yeah, I, think, uh, I don't think you have to inject the saline. So you could aspirate it. Without scraping, just. Yeah, you could you could aspirate it. But we usually have a little saline in the syringe because you get one drop of bloody tissue juice. You want to have it diluted enough to culture on many different plates and things. So the reason for the saline in the like half a cc of non-bacteriostatic saline, you don't want bacteriostatic water because that kills the bacteria with bacteriostatic water. Use the one that they inject the chasers for the IV lines. You take a little out of there. Because that they have like half a cc of mixed with the tissue juice, one drop, and it's able to culture the tissue. But another way is to scrape it, squeeze it, and um, take the surface of the culture at. So I'd probably do that. It wasn't, it wasn't done in this case. So uh, her arm was getting worse, uh, but she was feeling better otherwise. So her fever got better, and the blood cultures are reportedly too as. Now you had, you had admitted her to the ICU. She probably was in that. So Dr. Murdoch was taking care of her up there. And so if he calls you and said, hey, you know that lady you admitted? She now has positive blood culture. She's getting better, though. So he said, let's go down to the lab and take a look at the gram stains in the blood culture bottle. We always do that, right? Yep, I do that now. Okay, so there's the gram stain from the blood culture bottle. It's not on a plate. It's going in the blood culture. So what do you see here? See gram negative, uh, gram negative rod. They're sort of long and thin. There might be some smaller ones. There's only one organism here, so we don't have it. We don't know what it is yet, right? And it took 48 hours to grow. That's very unusual because the way they have the blood culture system now, a very modern system, they they are uh, sampling the atmosphere in the blood culture bottle and make changes to a different chemical than they do the gram. So they four hours sometimes. Four is after they get the incubator, they can get a positive. So it's very unusual to go even 48 hours to get a positive. Maybe slow growing organisms. So something like Staph aureus or group A strep or pneumococcus, it's usually positive in 12 hours. So it's something that's sort of growing slow. So here's what happened. We don't know what it is yet, but she, her neutrophil count is going up to 4,000. So she's getting, so she got better on day five. The organism was identified as pasture-grown fossil, which is a slow-growing organism. And she gradually improved over the next two weeks. And she went home. And what advice you'd probably give her is when she's, when she's probably at the nadir of the neutrophil, you probably shouldn't play with her cat. Because cats just naturally have to scratch and bite and play. You probably shouldn't be better just not being around the cat too much when you have neutrophil. Okay? So let's look at a few uh, scenarios here. We have the combination here. We have a patient with febrile neutropenia for cancer, as well as some environmental thing that is a bite, which can change the flora. We have two different approaches here. So uh, remember, you can always call somebody for advice on the phone. Uh, you should always especially call the patients on the collar just to let them know what's happening. Uh, 
how we call the oncology fellow for the UCI patient. And some patients, we see a lot of people in Disneyland coming from all over the country, or seeing during their neighbor of neutropenia going to Disneyland, or coming from Philadelphia. So they usually give you the card of their oncologist and say, please call this doctor and, and any time of the day or night. So they usually are available to get advice. They might give you past history. We could also call the ID fellow for advice. Although some can get a first year ID fellow, it's like an R4 level, they might not know all the intricacies of the cat bite but they know a lot about neutral neutropenia. So there's various uh, scenarios you could have, and each could be approached a little differently in terms of risk. So this patient had a solid tumor without a focus of infection. Well, she had a focus. So there's several sources. If you have a solid tumor with febrile neutropenia and no focus of infection, and the patient looks clinically well, the chance of mortality at 30 days is close to zero. So you can just give any, almost any antibiotic you wanted to or even none. In Europe, what they do at some big centers is febrile neutropenia from a solid tumor uh, without well-looking patient, no source of infection despite uh, like chest x-ray, history, physical, stuff like that. Sometimes they admit them and give no antibiotics and they do really well. They don't, haven't done that in many states much stuff, but there could be a few centers, maybe not ours, that start doing that. So they're not as much risk for dying. So if they have a focus of infection with a solid tumor, especially the lung, they're a much higher risk of having a bad outcome. Or an anal rectal infection. Now the worst uh, patients are the ones with leukemia who have a focus of infection, which is often in the lung or anal rectal. They have a very high death rate, even with the right antibiotics. So uh, there's also so the different there's a different outcome here. So you got to really worry about the leukemia patient, especially acute, not chronic, but acute leukemia on chemo on several cycles, uh, who has a fever with or out of focus. There they could die on you in the next day and go into shock, even with the right antibiotic. You might survive. But the solid tumors, you're okay, but they have a you know you don't need to go too fast. You could call people for advice. So you could also have afebrile neutropenia with an infection. And usually have a source in that case, like acute abdominal pain, some intra-abdominal infection, you might have abdominal pain and tenderness. They have a pretty bad outcome, actually, unless they have, unless they look perfectly well. Then you could also have the non-neutropenic febrile cancer patient who comes with ED. Which do you think, besides the leukemics with the high mortality, which which of these groups would have the highest next highest mortality? So it turns out it's the non-neutropenic febrile cancer patient because they usually have all these surgeries. They have all these foreign bodies and then everything and they often get obstructed orifices and things like that. So they have a high mortality rate. The febrile cancer patient who's not neutropenic, especially when you find a focus of infection on future physical, they have a very high mortality rate. And often they're really sick already from other things. So um, there's various predisposing factors to infection in cancer patients. In this case we have neutropenia. But remember, with you can have uh, multiple defects, especially for high dose steroids. Uh, then you get the T cell defects, and the disease itself, especially leukemias and lymphomas, can just cause T cell and B cell defects by themselves. Uh, with solid tumors on uh, neutropenia fever, you usually don't have to worry too much about the, the infection associated with T cell defects. We we'll skip that part. So this is interesting because this big cancer group in Belgium did a, some studies on consecutive patients with, with infections that were, they're all admitted to the hospital with fever. They didn't all have neutropenia. Uh, 
They had non by, by about two thirds of them were diagnosed and eventually had an infection. But they took at the end of the, the whole like two weeks stay or whatever, they figured out they might have an infection. They classified them as infectious or not. But the respiratory tract was the most common site. But the second was they just had bacteremia, positive blood cultures, and they could never figure out where it came from. So they never, they always got, usually got better though. And when, if they had neutropenia, and they found the organism was usually gram positive, but they weren't neutropenic, it's usually gram negative rot. And it's often in the urine or the GI tract source. And insubacteremia was pretty much the same among the two groups. So just because you have neutropenia doesn't mean you necessarily have a higher rate of bacteremia. One more slide on this is that about one third of the patients eventually figured they had a, a non-infectious cause for their fever. And the biggest one here, I think, was either with drug fever and in venous thromboembolism, like blood clots and uh, pulmonary emboli, they were not really suspected at the time of admission. Without an infection, that's been probably a cause of fever. And then they have a lot of drugs, so drug fever is pretty common. Do you get high fevers with uh, Usually not, but you yeah, can't rule out absolutely. I think if you have shaking chills and temperature of 40, it's really unlikely. Especially the low grades to moderates, though, you might want to consider that, but especially if you have an abnormal x-ray though, and you think of pneumonia, you might want to get a CT scan because it not only diagnoses pneumonia, portal effusion, but also tumor extension, and also PEs. So if you look at the mortality though, oh, the one thing they didn't study here, they were too old to study, that we're seeing more of is Clostridium difficile as a cause of in cancer patients or non-cancer patients. And that can often has abdominal pain, but there may not be any diarrhea. They usually get sick, abdominal pain, uh, and that's something not on here, but that may not be covered by some initial impure treatment. Like even if you don't give metronidis after these people, right? So that might be to consider that uh, if you get if you have abdominal pain, you should give them a CAT scan. If there's any sort of colitis on the CAT scan, you probably should be sure it's probably for C. difficile. Even if they don't have diarrhea. So look at the mortality though. Look, the patients with not neutropenic had the highest mortality because they were very sick from all these cancer surgeries and all that. So the, what's the definition of neutropenia? You have to have less than 500 neutrophils, absolute. Or it can be, uh, including the bands, but not the myelocytes and all that. The bands and the, the mature ones. Also, early in the nadir of the chemotherapy, uh, like in the first uh, week, Still going down. It could be uh, it could be uh, under a thousand, like 501 to 999 or something. And then that's simply considered neutropenia. But if you're getting out like two, three weeks, and it's like 800, that's probably good. You're probably not really going to be neutropenic. They already were before. And sometimes you don't know unless your oncologist when the nature of the chemotherapy is. So you can call the oncologist. Usually it's about um, 10 to about yeah, 7 to 14 days. But you're not really sure, so you can ask the oncologist about it. Because you might have a different approach if their white count was 900 neutrophils and it was two weeks out, you might not be as likely, you might not have to take an aggressive action as if it's one week out and they're likely to get lower. So here's kind of bacteria. So neutropenia predisposes to certain bacteria and fungi, but not viruses or uh, protozoans like toxoplasmacy and semi-semites. So you see a lot of gram-negative rods, gram-positive cocci, even gram-positive rods occasionally in really immunosuppressed patients. And you see these so-called the pyogenic uh, fungi, they're called. So you don't see histo or coxin or something like that. 
usually with these fungi, you don't really suspect they're going to have it unless they've been on multiple courses of antibiotics or prolonged course. Then that's where you see it. So the neutrophil uh, count depends on, it rises if the neutrophil count gets lower, but the most severe infections in bacteria usually occur when it's really low, under 100. And you got to make sure you diagnose a fever, that they actually have a fever. And so the definitions they have in all the guidelines from various organizations is that it's a single temperature of 38.3 or greater, or it's uh, more than one temperature of 38.0 or greater. Okay. So if somebody's at 37.9 twice, you probably should and they don't look sick, probably should watch them and do more temperatures instead of taking the rest of the approach. And then the most common site of infection is usually the lung. In this case, we have the soft tissue. It's less common, the mouth and pharynx. Uh, the lung has a very high mortality rate for febrile neutropenia. So in the old days, in the 1970s and 80s, most of the uh, organisms were gram-negative lives, and now they tend to be over 50% and up to 70% something gram-positive organ. You've got to make sure you cover with the right drug to cover the gram positive. And we usually do that now. What I'm told is you should never do that fully. Yeah, you should do that. Well, what, should, what would you need it for? I guess. If they were said they could be monitored or not. There might be other ways to monitor or not. Yeah, but just, I would probably not put a fully in Unless they had an obstructed urinary tract. That's what I would put it for. Obstructed, like a, big, a man with a big prostate getting an obstruction, then I would do it. That's about all. There's some new uh, developments in our hospital that are trying to do it. They have people going around telling you to take out people's folates. Have you come in the ICU? Yeah. They have people in nursing come to take that folate out. You don't need it. to document. Every day a nurse has to document why a patient has a folate. It's already a doctor now. Why the folate's still in there. And if they don't, if they don't have a reason, they have to be yanked out of that doctor that's written up. So that's a big source of infection. So, um, and those infections that are hospital-induced uh, urinary tract infections from folates are reportable now to the Medicare and Joint Commission. So they don't want to get any, so they're going to have to So don't start the folates in the I say, okay, as long as somebody takes it out right away. That's a problem, they may not take it out. So now we have, besides, so we used to have a lot of these gram-negatives, but now we have more resistant ones. And what can happen with these, though, is that, say you had an infection just like two, uh, six weeks ago, you got better. And you come back with another infection like the same thing, they could also be resistant to the same way. You gotta, might get different antibiotics. But here's that thymogangrenosa from Pseudomonas. So this is usually a leukemic patient with febrile neutropenia. They have to have, like you see, very like zero neutrophil count. And this presents from bacteremia, and they have a few of these on their body. They tend to be fairly painless because the dermal nerves are all dead from the Pseudomonas. It actually invades the arterial and venous mineral walls. So uh, it looks sort of necrotic, though. And uh, let's say you, you probably would want to aspirate it. What would you see on the ground thing? See any white cells? No, you wouldn't see any white cells because there aren't any in your blood, right? But you see loaded with, loaded with bacteria, like ground in the lungs. So it would be useful to do an aspirate of that or cut it open or something and get a culture. And a gram thing might tell you whether it's like staph aureus or ground in the lungs. It's usually pseudomonas. I'm going to skip that part. Yeah? You don't want to do that? No. Uh, it wouldn't be essential to it right away. It doesn't spread too much. They're, you're mainly worried about the bacteria in their blood. It means they have pseudomonas in their blood, that's what's going to hurt them, it's not the local part. Does that clear up as you clear up the bacteria? Yeah. It goes away. 
goes away, but it may take weeks because it's, it's dead tissue right there. Uh, not the same as necrotizing fasciitis. It's just a subcutaneous infection, not involved in the deep fascia. So here's febrile neutropenia. Usually we want to give a single drug. There's little benefit to uh, multiple drugs, or just more drug toxicity. The only time you'd want to give uh, multiple drugs, they say, is with an immunopoietic if they're really sick, but that doesn't help the patient. It's like if they're positive, they have cultures in the past showing them that multiple disorder, and you have to give more than one drug to cover what you had before. And you generally don't give a fluoroquinolone for these people because they usually have resistant bugs. Unless you have to treat like Legionella or something that is only treated by the quinolones. Now let me turn to the bites. So, so we have the febrile neutropenia and now we have the bite. We have to look at that. So all these bite wound infections can be various local infections going from the site up to the bone. And they could actually get bacteria that uh, go into the joints and so forth in the bones. And even endocarditis. So let's say you're bitten by your dog or cat. Most people uh, rarely, they don't get an infection, except they get cat bite because it's deep. But there's various uh, risk factors for infection. Brush, punctures, treatment delay, bites in very young children, old patient with bite or hand or foot, that's uh, high risk. Bites by cats and pigs, humans and monkeys. Remember, humans and pigs are very similar. That's why they use the pig lab, because uh, they also cause a lot of infections. And because they're a lot of necrosis. So underlying uh, risk factors, though, predispose to infections and bite wounds, too. Like this patient had febrile neutropenia, but there could be other things, spleen problems, liver, diabetes. Somebody has cirrhosis and has a bad spleen, you probably should be very aggressive in treating with for sepsis. This lady uh, didn't have a mastectomy. She had the infection on the same side of her lumpectomy. Uh, she had a movement of that section, so there might be some predisposed infection at that site, at that arm, because she had the surgery on the same side, mainly lymphoid dissection. So here we have an adult male presents right after a cat bite. Rapid onset of infections, no fever though. What do you think of the organism? This would likely be pastorella, right? So pastorella multocida causes a very rapid onset of infection. Almost always. So if somebody's bitten by a cat and a week later, they said, yeah, sorry to get red a week later, it's our grain pus, it's likely staph aureus. Staph aureus never starts right away within 12 hours. But this one I've seen people get bitten and they're coming in febrile with a cellulitis 12 hours later. That's not staph aureus. It could be anaerobes, lupe strep, or it's usually pastorella if it's after some kind of a bite. But staph aureus, after an injury, it takes two to five days in the longer to start really causing infection. So that was pastoral mitosis. So here's the, what you get out of infected dog and cat bites. They're already infected, they're not fresh wounds. The main things to consider was be staph aureus and pastorella. If you cover for those two, you're essentially covered for most all the other ones. So uh, Dr. Taylor up at, yeah. Predisposes to infection. 
and also choose studies to that the antibodies aren't going to work directly to get in the area, so you might need some improvement. But there's nothing different about their mouths. You'd really worry if they had a big cat, uh, these cats. They would have a deep puncture wound, and if they're aerobing at the bottom, you can't irrigate them. Whereas if a big dog bites somebody, it rips the tissue, it's open, you can irrigate it pretty well. But there's a lot of necrosis. So those big dogs can bite with hundreds of pounds of square of pressure, pounds of square, hundreds of pounds of pressure per square inch. So that's what it is. So uh, David Tan went up at uh, all of UCLA, did a multi-center study where he looked at infected dog and cat bites. And they cultured all, they opened these things up, and they were, all the cultures sent to a central lab. So there was a special lab that you know how to multiple people and things. And they found that pastorella was the most common single isolate, even among dogs. And before that, they thought that it wasn't that common in dogs, but they found it was pretty common in dogs, but it was more likely to see that in cats. Staph aureus was seen in about a fifth of the dogs, but hardly any of the cats. Streptogy was seen in the dogs. Some of the anaerobes were seen a lot of, they had two, five isolates for, for, for a bite here. So you can see that pastorella is this gram-negative organism. It's facultative anaerobe, which means it can grow in anaerobic conditions. So at the bottom of a deep cat bite, there's essentially no oxygen, so it can grow in there, whereas Staph aureus, uh, well, Staph aureus is sort of similar, but it needs more oxygen. Uh, it's found in all these mammals, but not the, uh, which humans would you find it in? Do you find it colonizing in the human mouth? Only pet owners. These are uh, pet owners that kiss their pets. That's what it's about. <laughs> so what's important if you see a rapid onset infection, then they should cover for this. And it may be hard to figure out what to give them if they're penicillin allergic. Okay? So here's a true or false question. So let's ask uh, Tyler. Here's the answer to the question. True or false? Cephalexin, cephazolin, or clindamycin are good drugs to treat pastoral in the false. And you agree, Austin? Yeah, I agree. Okay. That's Good. That's correct. It's false. Mm -hmm. That's a first-generation cephalosporin. They said they didn't work too well, right? Clindamycin doesn't work either, which we sometimes get for people with MRSA, right? So it doesn't work for this. So what about this one? Uh, let's go to Pam. Uh, this is the last true and false question. So. Trimethoprim sulfa, doxy, and fluoroquinolones are good drugs to treat pastoral and Yeah, You can ask for help from Sharon, maybe, because she's saying that she knows. True. These are all great drugs, but the primary drug is going to be a beta-lactam. So if somebody's allergic to penicillins, all these work really well. Although you'd probably say that the bactrim and fluoroquinolones might work faster, because doxycycline is very liquid soluble. It's too half-life to get good tissue up. So these are really good for penicillin-allergic people, okay? And it's really susceptible to all these things, but resistant, remember, the first-generation cephalosporins, you know, glycosides, clindamycin. So mostly you're getting drugs from this sign for most bites anyway, or, or even cellulitis, if you don't think it's a bite. So they, they work pretty well. Uh, here's a question. 24-year-old uh, woman on high dose. Let's ask Randy about this. 24-year-old woman on high-risk predators for lupus comes in 36-hour or minor dog bite with septic shock and widespread preferred stimulations. It looks like alcohol sepsis, fulminant injury, Look at the bite site. 
her husband, she can't talk, she's unconscious. The husband said, oh, he's been right there, it's just a little scratch, a little red, not much going on there. What do you think the organism is? And can you pronounce it? <laughs> So Capnocytopa decanamorsis, there's the picture of that type So remember, it's sensitive to most of these antibiotics. So you don't even worry too much about it. If you treat from hypoxemia, you're okay. So it's a gram-negative rod. It's hard to grow. It's mostly reported in Denmark because they have a special lab that knows how to grow it, but you see it in different places. And it mainly occurs after dog bites, occasionally cats, and it causes rapid onset of like an endococcal infection. Here's a patient who died of it who was healthy. Okay, so this would come on right after the bite, within like 24 hours. The bite site has nothing there. And you can usually see them on the gram thin of the blood. Not the blood culture, but the blood. So usually a patient with a bad spleen on steroids. So, so it's sensitive to most antibiotics except a few like immunoglycosides and maybe back here. So basically anything you're getting for the other one, infection being covered is pretty well. Should it clear up quickly? Usually you die, but so it's usually getting out of the hospital fast, right? Usually, there's a high death rate. Like, do people react? You know, if you get them on the right antibiotics, they turn around. They they usually by the time they come in, they're already in cupro fulminans. So the mortality rate is probably over fifty percent. And the ones who survive probably do badly, or even got a limb amputation or something. But they have some people who survive. So once what's recommended is some of these people, what if somebody says, somebody has their spleen taken out, it was on high steroids, and says, oh, my cat just bit me. They come right to the ED. You probably should give them an antibiotic right away, not admit them without sick, but give them a, a shot, so like IV or something right away. And they probably should have someone at home to take. Or the best thing is just don't have a cat or a dog. <laughs> I have a pet turtle. Let me just get someone else. It that. So uh, let's say we have just a routine infected dog and cat bite. And he's not a, uh, that, that's sick and needs an IV drug, uh, who's not immunosuppressed, who could be fairly narrow spectrum like Unison, Epsilon, Sobactam, or probably a cephalosporin here. Vertipanum is okay, but it's maybe covered in internal organisms there. Uh, you could orally augment it. Moxicillin is actually pretty good too if you're not considering staph aureus. But usually you're trying to cover staph aureus, pastorals, and anaerobes. If they're pretty sick, like the immunosuppressed, you might want to go with what we talked about with neuropenem, or I mean, um, imipenem, uh, neuropenem, uh, cephalopenem, zosin. Zosin is a good choice. It's unrestricted to cover a lot of things. And then maybe vancomycin. So this is for healthy people. And the main thing about getting a culture of the wound is to look for staph aureus, which is easy to grow, but the other organs are hard to grow from the wound. So if you kind of culture for pastorella, isn't a good culture, it doesn't grow, it doesn't mean it wasn't there. But you can rule out staph aureus by having negative culture for that. And it just always grows easily. So does group A strep if you have a wound that's open. But if you have cellulitis and aspirate, it's hard to, aspirate, it's hard to culture group A strep out of it. So delayed onset of infection, think of staph aureus, rapid onset, see the pastorella. And that's, that ends the staph case of the house cat bite. Thank <laughs> you.